When I was a little boy, I was kind of a strategic thinker, I guess you could say. So I didn't stay home, or I didn't stay at school and eat in the cafeteria. I would come home for lunch because I knew my mom would make me a fresh lunch every day, and it was worth the walk, so I didn't have to put up with cafeteria food or a bagged lunch. I'd come home, and my mom would make me my lunch pretty much every day. And so I would make the walk. It would take about a third of my lunch hour to walk home, a third to eat, a third to walk back. But on occasion, when I would come home expecting my mom to be there, she wasn't there. Now, later I found out she was off grocery shopping, didn't get back on time or something came up. But I'd come home and mom wasn't around. And that would automatically stir a lot of anxiety inside of me. So what I would do is I would call my grandma, my mom's mom, who just died last year, a very godly woman, loved the Lord. I still remember her phone number, 631-2271. I'd call my grandma. If my grandma picked up, then my anxiety would cease. But if my grandma didn't pick up, my anxiety would heighten. Now, you might ask, why? Like, why were you so anxious? Were you like a mama's boy or something like that? No, I really wasn't a mama's boy. I was probably the farthest thing from it. But I did not yet have the assurance of my salvation. And so when I would come home, I knew my mom was a Christian. My grandma definitely was a Christian. Jesus would absolutely not come back and leave my grandma behind. So if I came home and my mom or my grandma weren't around, I would think, well, maybe Jesus had come back. And I'd been left behind. And this was something that went on for a period of time until I grew in the assurance of my salvation. And from there forward, didn't have to question or wonder, like, am I saved? Am I not saved? Am I going to be left behind? Am I going to be taken home to be with the Lord? Am I a Christian? Am I an authentic Christian? And how do I know that I'm saved? This morning, I would like to address this question with you because I suspect that many of you who are maybe newer to faith or depending on your church background, wrestle with the question, am I truly born again? Am I truly a Christian? Am I truly a child of the King? And can I have the assurance of salvation in this life? In the word of God, we're going to study the second chapter of first John today. God invites us to take a test to prove the authenticity of our faith. The test is here to be taken. You can take this test today to prove the authenticity of your faith. If you've already taken the test, you can ask yourself the question, have I passed God's authenticity test? Do I have the markers of true conversion? The first test for authenticity is the question, do I really love God? Two tests we're going to take. Both relate to love. We're calling this the love test. The first one is about our obedience to God. Do I really love God? In the first verse of chapter two, Paul begins to speak to these early believers using affectionate language. This isn't language that was intended to diminish them or speak down to them, but he speaks to them as a father would speak to his children. The apostle John, that is. And he calls them my little children. 
my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the father, Christ Jesus, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. That's a big word. Probably don't use that very often. It comes up twice in the book of first John's. It's a biblical word, by the way. And so because it's a biblical world word, we should know this word, become familiar with this word. He is the propitiation for our sins and not only for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Verse three. And by this, we know that we have come to know him. If we keep his commandments, whoever says, Oh, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected by this. We may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. We're going to continue through this chapter, but I want to stop and just kind of unpack a little bit more. These first six verses for you as well as the implications that arise from this biblical teaching. The first thing that John addresses is the basis of salvation. And what is the basis of salvation? The basis of salvation is Christ. Look at the first couple of verses. There's four things that kind of rise up out of the text here. The first is we must acknowledge that believers will sin. We will sin. He writes this to them, not to warn them about an impossibility, but about a possibility. It's not impossible for Christians to sin. It's possible for Christians to sin. He hopes they don't. I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But then he goes on to say, but if anyone does sin. So it speaks to the reality of our condition. We have experienced grace, but we're not yet fully sanctified. There are thoughts that will cross our mind that are wrong. There will be things that come out of our mouths that are sinful. There are places we will go or relationships we might engage in that dishonor Christ. And if we do those things or say those things or think those things or harbor those kinds of attitudes, well, We need to do something about it. What do we do about it? Look at the second statement here. We need to look to our advocate. So truth number one, believers will sin. Truth number two, we have an advocate. We have the Lord Jesus Christ who's described here in the text as the righteous. Why? Why is that inserted? To emphasize how different Jesus is from us. Jesus is incapable of sin. Jesus is the righteous Messiah. And as our advocate, the role of Christ is to play the part of our defense attorney in heaven. So God, the father is the judge and God will not allow any sin to go unpunished lest he be accused of injustice or unrighteousness. But the Lord Jesus Christ comes before the father as our advocate and he pleads our case, but he's not like any other defense attorney you've ever met. 
Because what we would normally expect the defense attorney to do is to try to what? Prove our innocence. It's going to say, well, they didn't do it, or there's an explanation for it, or, you know, they were criminally insane, or you don't understand this. Come up with all kinds of excuses to try to let them off the hook. If you had a defense attorney that went to the judge and said, actually, the person's a dirty, rotten scoundrel. Yeah, they committed the crime, but please don't lock them up. You'd be like, fired, you're gone. Jesus comes as our advocate, but he doesn't make excuses for us. He doesn't sugarcoat sin, but he presents himself, interestingly, as the substitute to pay for the sins that we have committed. So consider this illustration, very rough, but it might be somewhat helpful. Every once in a while in the news, you hear about someone that was exonerated from a crime they were previously convicted for. Stories of people who did 25, 30 years in jail for a murder that they supposedly committed, and all of a sudden they're exonerated based on DNA evidence. Can you imagine forfeiting 30 years of your life in jail and never being able to get that back? The government might give you several million dollars, but it it pales in comparison to the loss of 30 years of your life. But imagine if the government would allow the wrongfully convicted to take, let's say, that 30 years that they'd put in for a crime they didn't commit and to freely distribute it to people who had been recently convicted of a crime but not yet done the time. So, so suppose there's three people and a person A is, is convicted of a crime and they're sentenced to five years and person B is convicted of a crime and they're sentenced to 10 years and person C is convicted of a crime and they're sentenced to 15 years. But the person who's done 30 comes to them and says, I know you're guilty. You should do your five, but I'm going to give you the five that I already paid for to the 10. I'm going to give you the 10 that I already paid for to the 15. I'm going to give you the 15 that I've already paid for. And, and they essentially would have borne in their bodies, in their lives, the crime, the payment for the crime that you otherwise should have paid for. Well, that's what Jesus does as our advocate. We do the crime, but he did the time for us. And so as our advocate, he stands before the father pleading our case, not pleading that we're innocent, not pleading that we should be let off, not pleading that God should be, you know, gracious and just kind of overlook it, but that God would accept the Lord Jesus Christ's sacrifice on our behalf so that we would be set free from our sin. If you sin, the text says, we have an advocate who is God. We also are told that Jesus is the propitiation for us. What does that mean? In Christian theology, we talk about an atonement, a covering for sin, a payment for sin. Jesus atoned for our sin. He assumed our guilt. He shed his own blood. He had his life taken from him in order to pay for our sin. In propitiation, as Christ propitiates our sin, he takes the atonement that he has paid for us and he reconciles us to God. So atonement is the basis of, of, of propitiation, but propitiation is the next step. It's about gaining favor with God as God the Father accepts the atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ and applies it to our account. Jesus Christ is the great 
propitiator. He propitiates or expiates us from our sin. This is a a wonderful doctrine that we need to guard and hold tightly to. Jesus has committed, Jesus has enabled us to be reconciled to God even when we were still sinners. The fourth truth that arises from these clusters of verses is that this offer is available to the whole world. Now the whole world here cannot mean that we all have had our sins forgiven. This is not some doctrine of universalism. It's teaching, well, in the end, everybody's going to make it to heaven, regardless of belief or regardless of creed. Everybody's going to make it there in the end because Jesus paid for all of their sins. But rather, it communicates to us, as does John 3.16, that Christ is the universal means of being pardoned from our sin. There's no second Messiah. There's no other way that you can be reconciled to God. Both Jew and Gentile, male and female, slave and freedman can be reconciled to God based upon the advocacy of Christ as he propitiates our sin. So coming out of these verses, here's what we must conclude. I can't take credit for my salvation. I can't work for my salvation. I can't come to God by a different Messiah. I can't make up my own road, but rather we are justified, meaning made right in the eyes of God based upon the gracious, unmerited, unearned, sacrificial, mediatorial work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And make sure you add this word to the end of it and him alone. That's the basis of our justification. But verses three, four, five, and six help us to ask the question, but how do I know that I've been justified? How do I know my life has been changed? And here's where we run into this biblical truth that the gospel has an intention attached to it. And the intention of the gospel is not just to get you out of hell. The intention of the gospel is to bring glory and honor to God through your life. So obedience then necessarily flows out of, spills out of justification. If justification is the faucet, sanctification is the water that comes out of the faucet. You don't just install a faucet for the sake of having a fancy looking silver thing in your bathroom. It serves a purpose. And obedience necessarily flows out of the faucet of justification. So verses three to six point to the proof and the proof of salvation is obedience. That's the necessary fruit that grows on the tree of justification. How do we know? Well, Jesus work will make a difference in your life. The first thing that we're taught here is that I will keep his commandments. I will keep his commandments. This is not a, how do we get saved question? This is a, how do we know we're saved question? Keeping his commandments doesn't get us saved. Keeping his commandments proves that we are the real deal. That we truly have been saved. The opposite is also true. 
The Bible teaches us that if we don't keep his commandments, what does it call us? We're liars. We're fakes. We're frauds. We're counterfeits. We're not the real deal. Of course, this is not teaching us that in this life we will ever reach absolute perfection, sinless perfection, but that we will abide in Christ. We will stick with it. This is when, when the text says, if anyone does sin, so it acknowledges the fact that while perfection is our goal, we're not going to quite make it. Nevertheless, if we don't keep God's commands, we're liars. So think of this. This is not the means of salvation. This is where false religion gets this wrong. They make good, good works, good deeds, the means of salvation. This is not the means of salvation. This is a test to authenticate your salvation. Third, we will not be perfect, as I've mentioned, but we must strive for it. The text uses the word abide in verse 6. We're going to abide in Christ. We're going to stay close to Christ. We're going to persevere in Christ. We're going to come up along Christ. We're not going to abandon Christ. We're going to keep working out our salvation with fear and trembling. And if we stop striving and we're just like, well, I don't care anymore. You know, I prayed the prayer. I walked the aisle. I signed the tract. Now I can live however I want. I've heard Christians talk this way. You know, when they're confronted with sin, well, I once saved, always saved. Let's do whatever I want. No, you're a liar. Because a truly converted person will inevitably and necessarily work out their salvation. Not work for, but work out their salvation. They will demonstrate love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. They will commit themselves to the Great Commission. They will be worshipers of Christ and workers for Christ and witnesses of Christ. They will walk with Christ. They will demonstrate the authenticity of their faith. But here's one of the challenges. So often we think, you know, God's okay with like a 50% or God's okay with an 80%. Isn't that how it works in school? You come home, you're like, mom, I got an 80. She's like, wow, you got an 80. That's amazing. Usually you get 60s. Or I've heard students say, I'm going to go for an 80. But if you think about it, 80 means you failed 20% of the course. 90 means you failed 10% of the course. Have you thought about that? Your goal should always be 100%. And by the way, if you're a teacher, your goal should be for your students that they would master the subject curriculum and you should be overjoyed to give them 80% or 100%. The goal is not 80. The goal is not 90, even though other, comparatively speaking, those might be good grades. The goal must always be 100%. I want to master the rubric. I want to master the subject matter. I want to do my absolute best. I want to succeed. And the same is true of the Christian faith. We should never settle for a mere 90 when it comes to Christian living. We should never settle for an 80 or 50. Our goal is always 100%. I want to become like Jesus Christ. I want my entire life to be directed toward him. Will I get there this side of heaven? No, but that's my goal. And as I abide with him, I'm going to continue to strive for that. I'm not going to excuse my sin and say, yeah, but Lord, I know I did this, but I've done eight other things awesome for you this week. 
Or I know I said that, but think about all the great sermons I preached. Or I know I, I was chintzy and cheap and unloving. But think of all the times I've been loving. I mean, 80% of the time I got it down, Jesus. No. The goal is always perfection. Fourth, we have a benefit here. It says the love of God is perfected. Now, if you think about that, the word of is a fascinating little word in the English language. I remember sitting in Greek class like 20, 25 years ago, and the prof said, you know, there's like 30 different ways to use the word of in Greek. I'm like, what? Is that even possible? 30 different ways to use the word of? But it's true. Of can have a variety of meanings to it. Here it can have at least three meanings. It could mean God's love, the love that comes from God, is perfected in us. But that doesn't make sense because God's love is perfect from the beginning. It could carry with it the sense that, well, I need to demonstrate a love that's akin to God's love. In other words, my love should in some way be like God's love. Or it could mean love for God, like I have a love of chocolate, meaning I have a love for chocolate. I have a love for God. Now, likely it's that latter meaning and maybe even the intermediate one that's in view here. So what we're being taught then would be that as we obey God, as we commit ourselves to abiding in him and striving for him, I increasingly manifest a love to you that's akin to God's love for me. But even more importantly, I demonstrate my love for God, my love for God, which is my ultimate goal to honor him and glorify him, comes into greater fullness as I live a life that is in obedience to him. I think that's what he has in mind here. So if you look back at these verses and you kind of break it down into a sequence, the first teaching is basically, folks, try not to sin. Secondly, but if you do sin, Jesus is your advocate. Jesus propitiated your sin. The third idea is, Now, if you do sin and you couldn't care less about it, then you actually don't have Jesus. That's a huge problem. You failed the moral test. So test yourself and make sure that you are obeying and abiding in Christ. And if you are, the assurance is going to rise and rise and rise and rise and rise in your life. And the questions and the wondering And the lack of assurance is going to diminish and diminish and diminish. So test number one is a moral test. If you claim to truly have been justified by the grace of God, are you demonstrating obedience? Now we have a social test. So the second test for authenticity is, do you really love people? So the first is vertical love, our love for God. And then we have horizontal love. Do we truly love one another? Do I love you? Do you love me? Do you love the people outside of the church? Do you have affection for your fellow man? Verse seven and eight. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning, probably meaning the beginning of time. The old commandment is the word that you have heard At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you. You're like, hmm, how could it be old and new? 
at the same time. The next phrase helps to answer that question, which is true in him, meaning Christ, and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Here we have a command to dedicate ourselves to brotherly love. The world teaches us from the time we're little to love ourselves, to defend ourselves, to stand up for ourselves. How about this? To express ourselves without limits, without boundaries, it would seem. God's word is calling us out of our selfishness to selfless, less. See that word? Selflessness. He's calling us to love one another, to think less of self and more of others. This commandment that John is delivering to the early church is old in that it's been part of God's plan for, for humanity from the beginning of time. At the same time, it's new in that it's true and better in us, the text says, because it came to us in him. Christ Jesus took the love of God, which has been demonstrated to humanity since the beginning of time to a whole new level. Let me tell you a little bit about false teaching. False teaching is, oh, the God of the Old Testament isn't a God of love. Really? Have you read the Old Testament? Oh, he's a God of law. No, he's a God of love. How many times did he undeservingly or undeservedly forgive and retread and renew people that didn't deserve it. Time and time and time again, God showed his unfailing love to his covenant people. But when Christ came, God manifested his love to us in a much fuller way, much more tangible way. So if you're thinking to yourself, well, what does it mean to love other people. Well, you don't have to go any further than, further than the Gospels. Because in Christ, we see the love of God not just spoken, but lived out. As God's pouring love out upon broken people. The very fact that God would condescend and live among us and be smacked around by us and abused by us and falsely accused by us and tortured by us and then put to death by us. I mean, what greater demonstration of love is there than that? So while it's an old commandment to love, it's a new commandment in that Christ took it to a whole new level. So the, the question, what is love, is no longer a head scratcher. It's evident for us in Christ. So first we have the moral test. Are we living in obedience to God? But here we have the social test. Do we actually love one another? Verses 9, 10, and 11 say, Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no case for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in, that's present tense, is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. If you were hanging out with us last Sunday, when we studied the first chapter, you'll know that John uses the imagery of light and darkness to help us to understand the difference between walking with Christ 
and walking apart from Christ. Apart from Christ, welcome to a life of confusion, craziness, nuttiness, self-justification that makes no sense. In Christ, welcome to true enlightenment. Welcome to a life of perspective. Welcome to a life of reality. So we have that imagery in John 1, and it spills over into chapter 2. And we're taught here that just as obedience proves genuine faith, so love for others proves that we are in Christ and that he's in us. It proves that we're in the light, that we're not in the darkness anymore. Sometimes in evangelical Bible teaching churches, our ultimate goal is Bible knowledge. You think, well, you're, you're awesome. You're an awesome Christian because you know your Bible from cover to cover. Well, that's, that's pretty important to be growing in your understanding of scripture. But you can know your Bible from one end to the other. And if you don't love people, the Bible's like, you ain't a Christian. You ain't a Christian. Because the person that truly knows and has encountered the Christ of Scripture will demonstrate, manifest the love that Jesus Christ has manifested for us. By the way, Jesus is in you. Do you know that? The Spirit of Christ lives in you. How can the Spirit of Christ inhabit my body? The God who has demonstrated love in a greater way than we've ever seen before. And and I still remain hateful and spiteful and bitter and angry and gossipy and slanderous and murderous in my thoughts. No, no, that Christ is not in me if those things continue to be in me. This is a reminder to us that we are called to love others. Now, brothers and sisters, these words are not intended to shame you. These words are intended to equip you for victory over sin and growth in the assurance of your salvation. You can know you're saved. How, you ask? By trusting that Jesus alone can justify you, and then by living obediently and lovingly. So think about it this. In theology, we talk about justification, and we talk about sanctification. Justification asks questions about what is my position before God? What's my status? What's my standing before God? When God looks at Aaron, what does he see? How can I be justified with God? Jesus does that. Jesus dies for me on my behalf. He propitiates my sin. He atones for my sin. He grants me his Holy Spirit. He regenerates me. But sanctification inevitably follows that sanctification necessarily follows that sanctification is all about growing in holiness, cleaning up my stinking thinking, changing the way that I speak, affecting my attitudes, how I use my money, my time, my talents for Christ. That's sanctification. How do you know you're saved? You need to rest exclusively in the grace of God and the justifying work of God for our salvation. But then we prove that as we pass the sanctification test. So my assurance is going to grow and grow and grow. The more I see that, wow, 
the justifying work of God is actually making a difference. That proves that I was justified. I am being sanctified. I'm, I'm a little more like Jesus this year than I was last year. I desire to be like him. I, I want to strive to be like him. Yeah, I fail. But I don't give up. I persevere. I strive. I abide. I obey. This passage then serves to expose the counterfeits and encourage the Christians. That's what it does. In fact, it ends with very encouraging words. Remember at the beginning, he he spoke to them in a very soft pastoral way. He said, my little children. He kind of circles back to that. In the last few verses I want to look at, look at verse 12 and following. The Bible says, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven and for his name's sake. Speaking to, to true believers, he says, your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you fathers because you know him who was from the beginning. I'm writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. And then he shifts from saying, I am writing, I am writing, I am writing to I write, I write, I write. I write to you children because you know the father, present tense. I write to you fathers because you know him who was from the beginning. I write to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. He uses household language, the kind of language that is frequently applied to believing communities. He speaks of the believing community as children, as fathers, as young men. This captures the whole people of God. You're in, you're in this if you're a true believer. This, this, he's talking to you. You're the child, maybe the father, maybe the young man. And as he writes to you, he speaks using this language three times. I am writing three times. I write. Probably what that is, is it's a literary device designed to declare substance and surety. I'm writing. I write substance and surety. Surety grows because our sins are forgiven. Look at the language of the text. Our sins are forgiven. We know him. We overcame the evil one. We know the father. We are strong and God's word abides in us. Those are the marks that we see among true converts. When I see these things in me and I do, thank God I see these things in me. And when I see these things in you, thank God, I see these things in so many of you, we can rejoice that God has truly changed us. So again, the pastoral tone of these closing verses reminds us that for the true believer, these words are not intended to shame, but rather to equip. But for the one that may be playing a game, for the counterfeit, For the one who excuses their sin and says, well, I I walked the aisle. I I signed the tract. I raised my hand and I'm pretty comfortable fornicating and lying and gossiping and being a cheapskate. I'm okay with that. I mean, I got my ticket to heaven. You should be concerned. You should be concerned because the word of God says you are 
a liar. Exposes us flat out. Doesn't beat around the proverbial bush. Exposes us for our sins that we might move out of delusion and confusion into truth and righteousness. Only the liar then needs to worry, but not the one who is resting in Jesus and who looks back upon a life that has borne fruit and as a result has that full assurance that is available to you.